This episode of Earl Grey is brought to you by Audible.com, offering more than 180,000 titles for smartphone, tablet, and desktop. To get a free audiobook of your choice and help Trek FM at the same time, visit audibletrial.com slash trekfm. And also by Enterprise in Space, an international program of the nonprofit National Space Society. Find out how you can help science and education and become a virtual crew member aboard the NSS Enterprise Orbiter by visiting enterpriseinspace.org. Hi, this is uh, James Conway, and I directed 18 episodes of Star Trek from Star Trek Next Generation all the way through Enterprise, and you're listening to Trek FM. Welcome to another cup of Earl Grey, Trek FM's dedicated podcast to the next generation. I'm your host, Justin Ozer, and join with me today are the amazing Amy Nelson and the incredible Richard Marquez. Amy, how are you doing today? I'm doing pretty well. Thank you. It's nice to be back and talking next generation. Yeah. Richard, how are you doing today? Good. Um, yeah, good. <laughs> <laughs> Excellent. Well, we have some uh, feedback from the Babel Conference, episode 219, which was about games, sports, and hobbies. We had quite a lively discussion there. Um, Amy, do you want to get us started with that? Well, Wes Huntington says, you didn't mention Parisi Squares. Even though it was expressed as a dangerous game, it was never seen, so I understand completely why you didn't mention it. However, for what I would do on the Enterprise D if I served on the vessel, it would be a tie between poker and the phaser target practice. They both look fun, and I have played poker in real life. Side note, Worf's son Alexander did do the calisthenics program on the novice setting in New Ground. Yes, we. I did forget to mention that uh, calisthenics. Uh, so thank you, Wes. And yeah, I like the phaser target practice too myself. See, I always um, thought of Parisi squares as like a, a like a killer, like four squares. You know, like <laughs> like you're like you're getting hit with a disc or something. Like that. You have to dodge a disc and hit a ball at the same time, sort of thing. Huh. Did you guys play four squares? Oh, in, heck in yeah. School? Yeah. Don't, I, it was sorry. Could I don't be very know if dangerous. I'm familiar with that. Just don't want work? to do a cherry bomb on you. <laughs> oh, right. Oh my gosh. Awesome. See. Okay. Well, yeah. We've never seen Parisi squares. Somehow, I always imagine Parisi squares to be like dodgeball, but much more dangerous and having squares that you have to. Anyway, who knows what it's like? Maybe yeah. we'll see it on Discovery. I don't know. But anyway, thanks, Wes, for your comment. We certainly didn't get to quite everything, but we appreciate the mentions. <laughs> Uh, so Zach Moore said, I was excited to learn how to play poker as a kid because of TNG. I'm glad I did too, because I was ready for the World Series of Poker Boom of the early 2000s. Also, I didn't realize we never saw fencing all that much. Just the two times you mentioned and the deleted scene in Measure of a Man that got added back into the extended episode on the Blu-rays. So thanks, Zach. I can't tell from that if you would like to watch the World Series of Poker or if you were participating. I don't know if you guys know. I th- 
I read it as that he participated, but I guess I don't know. I really don't know. Well, it's it. No, it doesn't really say well, when. Yeah, yeah I Zach. I think if you were playing World World Series poker, <laughs> then when you come to Vegas, you let me know and I'll back you up there. I'll bet he was watching. I mean, there's some big. That's a big amount of money you have to put up for that, right? Yeah. I think he's younger than me. So 2000. No, I don't think he would been old enough. <laughs> yeah, I don't think he was old enough. Yeah. <laughs> Anyway, he probably watched it on TV, which is cool. But if somehow you were like the whiz kid at the World Series of Poker, let us know. Yes. Like, like the Game Master or something like that. <laughs> um, awesome. and, and Zach, you also mentioned uh, fencing in the extended version of Measure of a Man. Man, I really need to see that. I haven't because I actually don't have the Blu-rays. I just watch all the stuff on Netflix. But I really need to get that because I've heard a lot about the extended. Have you guys seen the extended episode of Measure of a Man? I have, yeah. Yes. I'm missing out. Yeah, I'll get to it. <laughs> Janessa Chiharda said, "I picked up I picked up the Beta Quadrant supplement for the Star Trek Adventures RPG recently, and some folks may be tickled to know that, according to Morpheus Games, Klingons and Andorians have adopted human ice hockey as a sport. There is such a, there is such a thing for there is such a thing for uh, as the Klingon Hockey League." I absolutely love that, and I, I, she, she actually posted the picture of it, and I can only yeah. imagine what it would be like. Like, <laughs> I'm sure they would have to take the bat list out because not everyone can die on the on the field. But then again, I don't know. It, it very well could be like you know, lacrosse in the early days where they took each other's heads off. So. I don't know. <laughs> I, yeah, I love that that she put up the image. I actually imagine they usually have a hockey stick, but when they get close to each other, they have like a button they can push and it turns into a battleth so they can battle it out. It's <laughs> pretty, oh, pretty great. Pretty yeah, it great. is. <laughs> and we have Pierre LaRocco says, I think Picard doing things like fencing and horseback riding shows us that he is a Renaissance man of the future and has mastered not only the modern, but the historical as well. And you're right. It's a very good summary of what we know and love about Picard. I think you hit the nail on the head. Perfect. Thank you, Pierre. Yeah, Jean-Luc Picard, a man for all ages. <laughs> yeah, thank you, Pierre. I, be, I I do appreciate that about Picard a lot. Like he, he lives in this really advanced future from our perspective, but he still appreciates what came before, which is part of our history. So... I love that about uh, Picard quite a bit. Today on Earl Grey, we have a very special guest, Jim Conway, who directed the TNG episodes Justice, The Neutral Zone, and Frame of Mind, as well as seven episodes of Deep Space Nine, four episodes of Voyager, and five episodes of Enterprise. Uh, Jim, thank you for joining us today. My pleasure to be here. Excellent. So let me actually start up by asking you, how did your directing career start? Um, I was in film school at the University of Denver. And I was a senior, and I was studying film. I was in mass communications department. And uh, a call came into the office that I happened to pick up, and it was a local producer who was looking for cheap labor to edit industrial films and commercials that he did. So uh, I said, hey, that's me. And I went to work for him while I was still in school. And after about two months of editing for him, I said, you know, I can direct better than these people you're hiring. So while still in school, he hired me to direct a, a commercial, and he liked it. And then I started directing commercials and industrial films for him. And some of the commercials had a lot of success. This guy's name was uh, <clears throat> Chuck Sellier, Charles E. Sellier. And we had a company called CBD in Denver. Um, time went by. I left briefly. I went back to Chicago trying to get an advertising there. He made a movie in Utah called uh, Life and Times of Grizzly Adams. 
And he called me to say they're going to try to sell it as a TV series to NBC to want to come back. So I did. I rejoined him. We were now in L.A. And we sold the series, Life and Times of Grizzly Adams, to NBC. Uh, it was a big hit. And based on that, uh, and we, by the way, we shot the show in Park City, Utah, because it was an outdoor show. And we loved Park City, so we moved the company from Los Angeles to Park City. And we were a non-union company at the time. So we went to NBC based on the success of Grizzly Adams and sold a package of 12 movies of the week. We owned the comic book um, uh, uh, Classics Illustrated. I don't know if you guys are old enough to remember, but it used to be a comic book called Classics Illustrated, and it was classic stories told in comic book form. So we went to uh, NBC and basically sold 12 movies based on classic novels uh, that would be aired over the next couple of years. Now, I should point out, we were all in our low, uh, uh, early and mid-20s. We didn't know what we didn't know. So we just went off and did it. We did Last of the Mohicans, and we did um, uh, The Time Machine, and we did Huckleberry Finn, and then we did The Greatest Heroes of the Bible. And we just started, we have, okay, let's do this one. We'd research it. We'd study a lot of old films, and we'd put, put it together and make it. And um, it was an amazing experience in terms of teaching me and everybody around us. We had two full-time crews um, how to make movies on the fly, and it was just a great training ground. Many of the people who were with me there in Utah have gone on to great careers here in Hollywood. Hmm. So that was basically the start. It was I was lucky enough to pick up the phone when I was in uh, college, and Chuck and I hit it off, and the great success came from there. Wow, that that's amazing. I guess moral of the story: if the phone rings, pick it up. <laughs> right. That's right. And then you know, like with any great opportunity, when it arises, you have to step up and, and deliver, and that happened too. Excellent. Yeah. And, and uh, Richard actually lives in, in Denver, so he's nodding his head at the Denver mentions. And uh, Amy spent some time uh, living in Utah, so she appreciated that as well. We still have, I still have a house in, in, in Colorado, not in Denver, but there's a little town called Westcliff, Colorado, mm-hmm. which is about an hour and a half from um, Colorado Springs in the Sangre de Cristos. And we have a summer place there. My wife and her family started this like 40 years ago. So we go there every summer, and it's. Uh, I love Colorado. That's, I still spend a lot of time there. That's a beautiful part of this uh, of the state. Uh, absolutely beautiful. I love. I actually went camping there last week uh, last year, and it's absolutely beautiful. I love it down there. <laughs> yeah, I do too. Yeah. Well, John, I'm interested. Were you a Star Trek fan when you started directing Next Generation, or was this just something out of the blue that you hadn't heard of? No, I was a huge Star Trek fan. I watched it as a kid when it was first on. And then when I was in college, it was on every afternoon. So uh, my classes were always over, and I'd come back to the frat house, and we'd watch it the whole – there'd be 30 of us in the in the uh, basement of the frat house watching the, the one TV, and we'd watch uh, Star Trek every afternoon. So I was a huge fan. And um, uh, when I left Sun Classic, which is what we were when we did all the Grizzly Adams stuff, I came to Hollywood, and I went to work for um, Aaron Spelling. And I did a show called Matt Houston. And I, the relationship I had with uh, Spelling actually lasted from 1982 until uh, the company basically folded in uh, 2006. And um, I did many, many shows there, including Charmed for eight years and a bunch of others, which we'll probably be getting into. And there was two long relationships in my professional career. One was Spelling for all those years, and the other was Star Trek for all 18 years. So after I had fin- I'd been working as a, I'm also a writer and a producer. So I was writing, producing, and directing for Aaron. Then there was a, a, a place where I, I they didn't have a show for me, 
1986. So I, uh, uh, Paramount put me under contract to direct for them. Uh, I was doing MacGyver, and part of the thing was to start directing uh, the new series. They were going to do the syndicated show, uh, Star Trek Next Generation. And that's how I got to be involved in the very first season of uh, Next Gen. And in fact, I think I'm the only director who did from the very first season of Next Generation to the very last season of Enterprise. And uh, I will say that there were some people, crew members, who were there from the very beginning to the very end as well. Wow. Yeah, it is incredible. That 18-year period, there were a lot of people that worked kind of from beginning to end on that and made it a cohesive whole. Yeah, it was like an entire career. And I'm still friends with many, many of them. I just did an episode uh, earlier this year or last year of uh, Orville, and -hmm. there were some people that were involved from Next Gen that were involved there. So you directed Justice, which is an early uh, season one episode. What was it like directing an episode of The Next Generation uh, when at the time of the production, TNG hadn't premiered yet? No, it had not premiered. um, And it was sort of finding itself. Uh, The scripts would come out and then there would be last minute rewrites by Gene Roddenberry. And the tone of season one is really exemplified by Justice because it's a nonviolent, you know, they're coming to the planet and they're just kind of trying to not interfere and uh, this is before the, the show really became much more interpersonally related and much more action oriented. And, you know, it was a weird episode because the, if you remember the, the wardrobe for the people on the mm-hmm. planet was very skimpy <laughs> oh. white outfits. Like, Everyone I, I remembers it. <laughs> yeah. I went to a convention about three years ago and there were a lot of people, not a lot. There were a bunch of women dressed <laughs> like they were in justice and a couple of guys. I thought it was quite funny to see that. Uh, and it was, it was kind of, you know, it was prep. We were prepping, still trying to find the show. Um, you know, it was uh, uh, very brightly lit. Um, uh, not, not nearly as gritty as it, as it became. And the wardrobe was, 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 uh, you know, sort of caught your eye like, Oh my God, what am I getting into? And then, um, the first time we went and I, we had, we had a scene where there were nine people who energized down onto the planet, transported down onto the planet. And I had this one big wide shot. And I have to say it was such a thrill to do the effect when they all, you know, first got, appeared, um, and the transporter. So for me as a, as a fan of Star Trek, as I would walk the bridge and start doing all the different things. And in those days, it was very simple special effects, as you can imagine. In fact, anytime we would do a special effect, they had to take the camera. They would nail it down to the floor. They would get a special camera, VNCR, that had a five-pin pull-down because you couldn't have any kind of movement in the gate at all. And if, if there was a blue screen up for the, for the screen where they're looking outside, nobody could move. You had to sort of stand there. And the camera certainly could not move. And to see where we came, were then in the early days, this is 1986, that seven, in the early days of visual effects, to where even at the end of... of um, uh, enterprise we were in terms of how you can handhold, move around, do anything, add anything, do anything. And now I also do a show called Magicians on sci-fi. And that, you know, just the, 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 the quality of, of visual effects has grown in so much over the years. Um, anyway, so on Justice, it was, it was really fun um, to do it. And I, I, I'm a very efficient director. And immediately I hit it off with Rick Berman. I mean, the secret to my being involved in the show for so long was because Rick and I, I really hit it off, and he really liked my work. So uh, Justice was my first episode, and I did, also did the season finale that year, uh, The Neutral Zone. And at that point, Paramount knew the show was coming back, but uh, none of the actors did. None of the So it was, you know, we were doing it, and nobody knew the show was coming back. And they sort of all teased that it was just a kid-syndicated television show, and that kind of 
internal joke about the show. I actually went all seven years with these guys. It was the, the cast. The, um, they may have mentioned that before. It was really kind of a funny thing. Well, talking about the cast, uh, I've been to a couple conventions and it just seems that they, you know, always reminisce that they on set were pulling practical jokes and singing and dancing and just really having a good time. Uh, you know, did you see that and did it take some time getting used to? Um, yes, that is exactly what happened. Uh, this cast, Next Generation cast, was much different than any of the other Star Trek cast and much different than almost any other cast I've ever, I ever worked with on. They loved each other. They still do. They're still in touch. They still see each other because of all the conventions. Um, but you would get on the bridge, and that's the only time you'd really have all of them together. And when they were on the bridge, they wouldn't, they wouldn't stop talking. They'd be talking and laughing. And the only time they would suddenly stop and get serious is when the, the, the slate would go clack. And then they just jump right into the roles. But other than that, it was it was a free fall on that set. I mean, they, these guys were crazy. But were you able to get used to it? Because uh, Marina Sirtis uh, actually tells a story about some director early on who just refused to, to work with them later because they they just thought it was too crazy. But I mean, did it just take you getting used to, or did you like that they kind of loved each other and they were a little crazy? Uh, I love that. Um, you know, they never got in the way of production. They were just having a good time. And if you can have a cast that's having a good time, and then once the slate happens, get serious and deliver, that's all you want. I mean, I've, I've, I've worked on a lot of shows where everybody hates each other. And believe me, I'd rather have a raucous set where they love each other than have uh, actors who don't like each other. I, I can imagine. Well, so you mentioned the uh, episode, The Neutral Zone, which was the season one finale of, of The Next Generation. Um, and, and you know, we've read that that was impacted by the writer strike that happened in '88. They had to kind of curtail some of the Romulan story, what would become the Borg, and add these 20th century humans into that. So I wonder what your experience was like uh, in directing that episode, and if you have any favorite moments on that one. Um, that one was impacted by the writer strike. In fact, um, it needed a rewrite and never got it. Uh, there was there were some non-union people on the producing staff who were doing some small little rewrites, who were in the writers' guild. But it was it was uh, it, it really hurt the fact that we we um, uh, couldn't get a, a rewrite on it. Um, and I, I kind of re- the, the thing that also came back for another episode is the um, when they were frozen when they were in the tubes and there was the, the, the coating on the inside to make it look like they were frozen. And um, it, 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 in prep, it sounded like it would work really well. But when we got to the stage and they put it on, you couldn't see anything of the people inside. So we had to sort of make it less, make it more, take it off, put it on, and it became a whole big deal trying to get it right. And then uh, when I came back and I did, I think it was the 37th, I had the same thing. Uh-huh, yeah, I think um, it did from Voyager, in, right? And Voyager. Yeah. And and uh, we in, in, in the concept meeting, we had a long discussion about that. Um, but it, 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 it was a great experience because I knew that... I, it was, this was a really fun show, and it was doing really well. And um, uh, I wanted to succeed for all the all the cast guys. So uh, it was it was a lot of fun. I enjoyed doing that episode. And then I left. I uh, they you know they had called to ask me back, but uh, I went on and I was the supervising producer, writer, and directing on a show called Paradise, which was a western that went for three years um, at Lorimar with Lee Horsley. He played a gunfighter who inherited his uh, his sister's kids. It was a really good show, and uh, we did that for three seasons. And then I did a show called Bodies of Evidence at Warner Brothers, which I was a, a creator and writer, producer, director on. And um, it was George Clooney's last series before he broke out and became a big star on ER. 
but he was a great guy. We did uh, 16 episodes of that. And when that was finished, uh, I was now available. So I called Rick Berman to say, um, hey, Rick, I'm available if you have anything. And two days later, I got a call to come direct Frame of Mind. And I, 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 it was fun for me because it was all Jonathan. And, you know, uh, Jonathan hadn't really had a show that really revolved around him in such a great degree. And, and he and I got along very well. So it was a terrific experience for, for me and for him doing the uh, doing that show. Yeah, I mean, I mean, in looking in the Star Trek episodes that you directed, I did notice there was that five-year gap and you were just busy doing other stuff. So that's that's great. I mean, it sounds like they wanted you back, but you had other stuff going on for a while. Yeah, and that, that, and that continued. Um, I then, after Frame of Mind, um, I started doing the, the uh, some Voyagers in Deep Space Nine and then people at Spelling called and asked me to be the executive vice president of the studio. And so I then left to did that. And I did that for six years, but during that time and, and both uh, uh, Paramount owned Spelling as well as obviously Star Trek. So in the midst of all that in 2000, Rick called me to ask if I would direct um, the enterprise pilot and I was available. So I, they let me go from Spelling to, to do that. And then after it was finished, I went back to, to uh, my job at Spelling. Even before that, I did a show called Burke's Law at Spelling, um, and Rick had called to ask me to direct the Voyager pilot, but it wasn't available. So, uh, And he also called me at the same time to direct the season finale of Next Generation, and that really broke my heart that I wasn't available to do that. So uh, those, those were two things, that, especially the season finale of Next Generation, that I really, really enjoyed doing. But I was lucky enough that they let me leave from Spelling to do the Enterprise pilot. Besides the fact that I loved that that script, it was such a thrill for me to, to do that show. So going back to Frame of Mind, like, it's so different. Like, it's visually striking. It's dark and moody atmosphere. I mean, compared with Justice in the Neutral Zone, like, were you able to give input on those visual effects on the episodes? And, like, how, like, why did it change so drastically? Was it just the story or what? It was, it was, you know, I'm, I like to direct what the script says. And because it was an altered universe and his imagination and it was spooky, I decided to really take it in that direction. And they were all for it. So um, that's, you know, and, and I directed, as I was saying earlier, almost every genre there is. And the, the look of the early Star Trek shows is so different than, well, Frame of Mind and then, you know, DS9, which was completely dark, gritty, uh, kind of show. And frankly, personally, I much prefer the dark, gritty look. Uh, Orville wanted to replicate the TNG Voyager look, so that's the look that we did on that show. But personally, I much prefer the, the, the grittier look that Frame of Mind has and all the DS9 shows had, even Enterprise. But they gave me freedom to do that. At, at, you know, at, at, uh, at Star Trek, they encouraged directors to bring style to it. They wanted the story to be told to make sure that the story points were hit. But you never had a list of, of things to do and not to do as a director. They really encouraged directors to stretch their wings, try new things. There was a lot of uh, stuff where people were trying to do long, complicated wonders and what you could do with a steady cam. And as new technology came in, the directors really had a free hand to try anything they wanted to, as long as you kept it within the nature of, the, of, of what the story and the script were trying to say. Well, that's really nice to, you know, work on a project where you have freedom to do what you want. Yeah. You still have to respect the fact that you're telling a story. For example, if you do a big, long one, you know, one where it's just the camera keeps moving and all around the scene, it's the whole thing is happening. 
and it's a, a good-looking shot. But if in that one-hour, which could last, say, a minute, you really needed to have cutaways and close-ups to people saying lines, and you don't, you've shot yourself in the foot. They're not going to like it when they see it in dailies, and you might not be invited back. So you had to make sure that when you did a fancy shot, it fit the script, that you weren't sacrificing style over substance. It was always, it's always important to tell the story. And um, as long as you could tell the story and do fancy stuff at the same time or do creative stuff, that works great. But you can't ever let style get over substance. I, I just had a question about what you just said, Jim, actually. So I, I think I noticed a term in there, uh, like a one -er. Is that like a one shot? Or I, I don't know some of the directing terms. Oh, a one -er is, is 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 where the camera never cuts. You know, Scorsese is famous for it. The opening shot in Goodfellas where they get out of the car, they go through the kitchen, they go into this nightclub. The camera keeps moving around and it's always on the person who's talking when they're supposed to be talking. So it's done, you know, certain scenes lend themselves to it. And so it's, it's the television, it's done uh, quite often. A good one, you frankly don't notice so much. Um, a lot of times, the fancy ones where they, they, they start circling, two people are talking, the camera's going around in a circle. Uh, that's, that's a wonder. If you don't cover it. A wonder also means you don't cover it. Uh, there's no other coverage. It's just that's the shot. You live it. You live and die with it. So that's why it's risky. Um, even when I do a complicated shot, which I'm sure will work as a wonder, to protect myself in the editing room and keep the producers happy, I'll always cover it as well, um, just to make sure that if something happens, the script changes. They have to drop a line, add a line, do something that they have the ability to do that. Which is also a secret to long-term success in this business is making sure that the producers um, are given what they need by the director. Excellent. Well, uh, actually, I wanted to go into a question. We have a listeners group on Facebook that's called the, the Babel Conference. So we asked some of our listeners before the interview to provide some questions. Um, and uh -huh. so we got a question from a listener, Wes Huntington, actually two questions. He said, of the three TNG episodes you directed, which one is your favorite? And then second, if you were asked, would you direct an episode of Star Trek Discovery? Um, Frame of Mind was my favorite. And Justice is a close second because it was the first time. And yes, I would direct uh, Star Trek Discovery. I've got some issues with it. I watched the whole season, and um, I have some issues with the storytelling and what they've done. But it's beautifully produced. Um, I love the sets. Cast is interesting. So yeah, I'd love to do an episode of that. What do you guys think of it? I think we so we have some different opinions. I I love it. I mean, there are, there are issues like there are for any any Star Trek uh, uh, show, but 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 I've I've overall loved it so far. And Amy, actually, uh, while Discovery episodes are going, she hosts a show called Postcards from the Edge, where uh, she takes listener feedback. So I'll let them speak to what how they feel about it. But but for the most part, I've loved it overall. Yeah, I've been quite in touch with what the fans think of it. And it was a pretty rough start. Uh, there were quite a few complaints and questions and this isn't Star Trek. But by the end of the season, um, we had really people are on board. They like it. There's, you know, so many people like Deep Space Nine. And so with that long story arc, you know, a lot of people are getting into it. I prefer more like episodic TV. So it's been a transition for me, but I, I really enjoy Discovery. My feeling is that it was a science fiction show with a Star Trek label because it was not like any Star Trek episode or season of anything ever, because it was a big, long arc. They never visited a planet to do the discovery, and it just wasn't the whole idea of exploring the universe. It was just a big war and a big battle. And I was very disappointed with how it ended at the end, where 
she makes one speech and all the Klingons just say, okay, that's fine. Forget the war, which is ridiculous. They just wrap that storyline up somehow. Yeah. After all we've been through. That is exactly what I said. Like you're, like you're saying, everything that we've been through. Cause I mean, I, okay. I, I'll just, I'll just come on and say it. I'm not a complete fan of discovery. I love the middle and partly the beginning, but the ending just looked like, okay, let's just wrap it up. Done. And that's what it felt like. So, yeah. yeah. And also, I have a question. You guys may know the answer. What happened to the other captain? The one that we had the doppelganger from uh, the other universe. But what happened to the other guy? That hasn't really been resolved. Where was he? That hasn't been resolved yet. You mean like no. the Prime Universe Lorca, right? Yeah. I think he died. Didn't yeah. he die? Like there's I think he went lots, down with the there's ship. There's lots of speculation because it's not for sure, and maybe there'll be more next year. But yeah, it hasn't really yeah. been. Isn't that terrible? Isn't that terrible? Terrible writing to, to you know you have this guy come in, but you well what about the guy that he's replacing? Where is he? How's that happen? I think yeah, I think they're they're and also, leaving it open. Que- yeah. Another question. He he blew up his own ship and killed his own crew. So that they wouldn't be taken prisoner by the Klingons. Well, they could have escaped from the Klingons, just like the the other guys did. I mean, what kind of backstory is that for a captain? Well, but he's mirror universe, so it has to, you know, show that he's the bad guy. You know, (laughs) but he wasn't. He was. It wasn't the mirror universe captain who did that. It was the real one. Wasn't it? No, it was the mirror universe. I don't know. Uh, Yeah, that that was the mirror universe one. But, it very well could be and, the mirror one. I don't know, but it's, anyway, it it's not it's, really clear. It, it's interesting because, like, throughout the season, we've had all of these uh, discussions, and you know, some of the criticisms you're talking about, Jim. A lot of the fans have have had that. Oh, um, absolutely, as, as well for sure. So it's interesting to get your perspective. But uh, yeah, you're not I, alone. <laughs> no, you're definitely not alone. It's been interesting seeing the different different points of view. Uh, but Richard, I think right. you had another question from the Babel Conference. This question comes from Tim Hans. Um, hello, Mr. Conway. Uh, were, were you ever approached to direct any of the TNG movies? And if not, which one would you have liked to have done if you're given the chance? I was approached to direct. Um, what was the name of the one that Jonathan Frakes first won? The, the first, best of those. Bu- first of Contact? Those? Yeah. First Contact. So Rick called me and he wanted me to direct First Contact. He sent me the script. I read the script. I was blown away how good it was. Um, I went and made the pitch to, um, to uh, uh, Sherry Lansing. And uh, it was all looking good, but Patrick had had uh, uh, director approval, and Jonathan Frakes had been directing some of the episodes and doing a very good job. And I didn't really have much of a relationship with with um, Patrick because I'd only done three episodes many years before. And if, I was always thinking to myself, if I had had the opportunity to do the season finale, the two part season finale, that might have been different. But when it came right down to it. They, Patrick had a choice between me and Jonathan, and Jonathan was his best friend at the time, and he picked Jonathan. So it was a torturous two and a half, three months of look like I have it, not have it. Jonathan suddenly comes into the picture, and then I lost it. And it broke my heart because you don't get those kind of opportunities more than once in a career. It was a fantastic script. It turned out to be a fantastic movie. Um, sort of as a, a uh, consolation prize, they had me direct the Borg video game. So while they were shooting their version with the Borg and, and uh, uh, next first contact, I was doing my own Borg and doing this, this video game that we that we shot. But that was yes, it was. Uh, so the answer is yes, and it broke my heart that I didn't get to do that movie. You know, speaking of the Star Trek board game, we actually do have a question about the Star Trek board game. Bruce Gibson uh, said, "What is it like to direct footage for a video game? In this case, Star Trek Borg versus directing the Star Trek TV series." 
it was a lot of fun doing the Borg thing because there were three or four alternative en- endings uh, for any situation, depending on which way the people went through the game. So it was a lot of fun to do all of those different versions. You'd shoot at one re- version, and then we'd shoot the next version, shoot the next version. And it was very complicated. And I think the only one who really understood what we were doing while we were doing it was, were me and the writer, because there were just so many different paths and variations that we had to cover and make sure that we got uh, shot. So it was different in terms of storytelling. In, in selling a normal te- television episode, you're telling one story beat by beat, and you're making sure that each of those beats is covered as you're going to that one story. In, the por- in this game, we were shooting four or five variations of the same story. And each led to another place and led to another place. And so you had to keep track of each of the strings of the story uh, so that it still worked all the way through the end. So it was challenging and it was a lot of fun. Yeah, to sort of preserve that continuity of, yeah, where they break off and where they go down different paths. Hmm. Yeah. And also I was working with um, with Q, one of my, my favorite Star Trek characters of all time. So uh, working with, um, <clears throat> blanking on his uh, name. John, John Delancey. Delancey. Yeah. John Delancey, yeah. Working with John was just such a delight. I did a, a DS9 with him, and I'm sorry, a Voyager with him, and then I got to do uh, this board game with him. That's a character that I just loved. He was never in the show enough for me. I wish they could use him more. So, Jim, you directed a number of episodes, as we mentioned, of Deep Space Nine, Voyager, and Enterprise. And actually, I wanted to, to list them here because I think a number of them are really fan favorite uh, episodes. Uh, for Deep Space Nine, you directed uh, Duet, Necessary Evil, The Way of the Warrior, uh, Little Green Men, Shattered Mirror for the Cause and Apocalypse Rising. And for Voyager, uh, you directed The 37s, Persistence of Vision, Death Wish, and Innocence. And then for Enter- Enterprise, uh, Broken Bow Parts 1 and 2, Judgment, Damage, and In a Mirror Darkly Part 1. So I know that was a lot of episodes that you worked on on, on other shows uh, besides TNG. But what was it like you know, directing for those shows? And do you have some favorite moments from those particular experiences? One uh, duet, the DS9 was my. It was my first DS9, and it was an incredible experience. It was um, unlike any Star Trek I'd ever done because it was mostly just a two-hander. It was between um, the two characters, and the script had a very, you know, bleak turn at the end when he's he's killed, and it was very interesting subject matter. Now the actor, um, I'm blanking on his name. Uh, I think it's Um, Harris Eulen. Yes, Harris Eulen had to wear a lot of makeup. And he had a lot of these big, big scenes where he had a lot of dialogue. And it was three or four hours of makeup every day. So he'd have to get there at three in the morning and they start putting on the makeup. And after two or three days of that, he was unable to remember the lines that, that he needed. So it was very difficult for us to shoot the scenes and the script clerk had to help and sort of feed the lines. In a testament to his skill as an actor, when it's cut together, you do not know that. Oh, no, there was but no the way I would time, know that. <laughs> No, but at the same time, at the end, while we were shooting, he decided that his character shouldn't die, that his character should actually survive and live. And it became a big thing because he, you know, he said to me, I don't want this guy to die. And then they called the producers in. So I was called to Rick Berman's office. Michael Pillar's there with Rick Berman. And they just told me in no uncertain terms, he's dying. Tell him to shut up. And that's the way it's going to be. So I told him that and, and he was fine with it. So there's a lot of drama involved in making of the episode so while i'm shooting it i've got i don't know if it's going to cut together properly because of all the feeding of the lines and, and all of that and then i get into the editing room and when i see it put together i'm just blown away how good it is the impact of the t- scenes with the two of them and then the uh when he's assassinated at the end and it's such a dark dark 
kind of gritty show, so unlike Next Generation was, that I just loved it. I loved it. I thought it was, I always thought it was kind of a, a film school version of, of, uh, Star Trek because it was so it was it was it was dark it was something you would never think of for original series or for uh, TNG. Yeah, definitely. I mean, I think it's one of those episodes that really distinguishes uh, Deep Space Nine in the, in the first season. Um, you know, and I think I, and a lot of other fans think that it's one of the very best of of that whole show or in all of Star Trek. So it's 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 really interesting to find out some of the background because it is really an incredible episode, and I'm glad that they convince the actor to go with the original ending because it's much more effective that way. Yeah, well, he had no chance of having Bill input. The actors really do, especially guest stars. But it just made for sort of drama on the set. And the other one I, that sticks out to me because I loved it so much, well, I loved doing Way of the Warrior because it was a big two-parter. And in fact, when I did Way of the Warrior, it was at the same time that Rick was trying to promote me to do the, the, the movie. So it was like a mini audition because of all the big action sequences and the fights and all of that. So uh, uh, that was sort of going through my mind as I was doing Way of the Warrior. But when I did Little Green Men, I really loved it. First of all, it was so funny. There was so much humor in it. And uh, I directed a movie called Hangar 18, which is a sci-fi movie about basically a, 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 a Little Green Men sort of thing where uh, the, the, we take the Hangar 18 theory, we, we, we dramatize it. And, and so I did Little Green Men. It really felt right at home doing it and that's one of my favorite episodes because it's, it's so funny there's a couple scenes in there that I still laugh out loud when I see them yeah we have um Brandon Shea Mutella he actually hosts uh, uh the podcast for Star Trek Enterprise and so he has a question for you obviously he says as the director of the pilot episode Broken Bow much influence did you have on the look of Enterprise was the show greenlit prior to completion of the episode or did the producers need to see the completed episode? And then one last thing, how did filming in 16 by 9 for Enterprise change the way you shot your episodes? Uh, good questions. All right. First of all, the show was picked up. Um, we were, uh, I finished the pilot and they, they shut down for like two weeks and then they started shooting the series. So we knew it was com- coming as a series. I had a lot of influence over the, the look of the show in terms of the, um, uh, the photographically, uh, how it looked. It was Marvin Rush, who was a DP. I'd worked with Marvin before. Uh, we spent a lot of time talking about it. We, we, uh, looked at a lot of films together. Um, we wanted it to feel like a submarine, more cramped than the other Star Trek shows. Uh, we wanted it to be much more, uh, spot lighting so that we talked about the lighting, the pools of light here and there. And we wanted the camera to be moving all the time. So it was designed with a crane <clears throat> on the bridge where it was designed so that we, the crane could move in. To any position on the bridge and move all around so we could get interesting low shots over the panels and up to people's faces. And so it was all designed so we can keep the camera moving in, in there. Um, and what was the third part of that question? Uh, filming in 16 by nine. And that's even, it, that's really interesting because I had been shooting 16 by nine on the other shows I was working on. Star Trek was still four by three. And when we, and, and in those days you were shooting 16 by nine, but you were protecting for four by three. So if somebody had still had a, 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 an old TV, they would still see everything in the frame that they should. So it defeated the whole purpose of shooting 16 by nine, to tell you the truth, because you had these weird, ugly frames. We had the over the shoulder was there and there was all the space to the left and the right. Um, but they still hadn't committed on the, uh, uh, the network to show, to show it as 16 by nine. So I shot it and protected it to go either way. 
And once they committed to going 16 by now, nine, I went into the, the, uh, the color timing room with Marvin and basically reframed every shot in the pilot the way I wanted it for 16 by nine. So I shot it so it would work in 16 by nine, but we would be protected in four by three. And once we knew it was 16 by nine, I had to go in and just fine tune some of the shots to make sure it was the framing I wanted. Wow, that, that's really something. I mean, you probably wish that they had just made that decision in the first place, right? Yeah, it, it, the show didn't suffer at all for it because I, we, we, we protected ourselves. It would have, made, would have made life a little bit easier. And then finally, they stopped making you protect the, the edges. Frankly, the directors were more doing it much anyway. We sort of gave them lip service because it defeated the whole purpose of having that wonderful frame if you can't use it. Right. Right. <laughs> so um, what was your favorite non-Star Trek directing work? Well, I'm doing it now. Frankly, it's a show called The Magicians, which is a sci-fi show. And if you haven't checked it out, I highly recommend it. It's on Netflix. Um, it's basically a, a, a gritty, sexy Harry Potter. It's a bunch of kids who go to a magic school. And it's based on three books by Lev, um, Lev Grossman. And it's a fantastic show. It's, it's got a great cast. It's got a great look. Um, it's a fantastic show. So that's what I'm doing now that I love. I also did Charm for eight years. And I love doing that. We had some drama in the cast on that a few times, but it was the same wonderful people, uh, same crew. In fact, Jonathan West and his crew came over in year four from um, uh, East Space Nine when it wrapped to take over. It did the last five years of uh, Charm with me. And um, I also did Smallville, which I loved, and Supernatural, which I really enjoyed. Excellent. We actually have a host on the network, uh, Zach Moore, who co-hosts Standard Orb. He also co-hosts the Smallville podcast, so I'm sure he'll be happy to hear about that. He loves the show. It's a great. It was one of the best shows. Tom was just a fantastic star and set a great tone there. That was a show without any cast drama. Uh, it was just. It was. It was really, really good. I loved it. In fact, the opening main title when um, uh, there's a, a fire and he sort of covers a little boy from uh, getting hurt it's just it, it sticks in my head in my in, in image uh, when i was a little kid i went off a high board and fell into a swimming into a belly belly flop into a swimming pool and a lifeguard jumped in and pulled me out it sort of reminds me of that feeling of somebody protecting you oh wow excellent so you had mentioned uh directing an episode of the orville and it's if the stars should appear um, I really have enjoyed the Orville, and you'd said that they wanted it more like a next gen or Voyager. So, can you tell us a little bit about that experience? And did it was it deja vu going back to you know Star Trek roots? So when when Seth, who created the show, uh, wrote the show, stars in the shows, uh, put it all together, he had always been a huge Star Trek fan. He guest starred on Star Trek uh, as an adult, but as a kid, he would watch it and just dream one day of. of being in his own Star Trek universe. So he created the show to do that. But being Seth MacFarlane, he'd had the, you know, a big comic tilt to it. But he wanted it to look like uh, Next Gen and Voyager, the big bright look. Hired uh, Marvin Rush to, to be the DP who did all three shows and knew exactly how it should look. Marvin and I had a long working relationship, so that went great. I directed the first episode after the pilot. A lot of the sets hadn't been built for the pilot, so we broke in a lot of the new sets. He put together a great cast, um, really talented people who I really enjoyed working with. And I really enjoyed the experience. The thing is, before I started, because 
he had, he was in every show, starring in the show. Before I started, they had all 13 episodes written. So I had the advantage of reading all 13 episodes before I was uh, started directing, which is unheard of because in most TV shows they're they're dying, they're fighting to get the episode you're going to direct, much less the one ahead of it. And I was very impressed with the scripts because it was a nice blend of Star Trek and Twilight Zone with this goofy sort of characters in there for the humor. And for people to, who watch it the first time, it has to grow on you. I think you have to watch one or two episodes before you finally get in the rhythm of what's going on there. But there's really solid work being done by everybody. And the storytelling is great, I think. And the show's successful. I'm very happy it's coming back. Yeah, me too. I was so excited to hear that it's got renewed for season two, especially on the Fox network that's infamous for canceling series. But um, yeah, I I agree with you. It took me, you know, that first episode just didn't really stick with me. But then that second one and there on, I was like, okay, this is a good show. And I, I love it. Yeah, the people who make it take it very seriously. And they really, and, and Brandon Brogg is the you know, the, the, the showrunner along with, with Seth. So obviously he's got the best Star Trek credentials there are. Yeah, it must be interesting, like working on, you know, Star Trek again all those years ago, but doing it now. <laughs> it is for him. Have you, have you done an interview with him? He would, I'm sure, love to talk to you. It's, uh, it, he said that. He said, this is really weird to be doing these stories again. <laughs> <laughs> Excellent. Um, so... You had mentioned a little bit before, but you're also credited as writer and producer on a number of TV and film productions. And I wonder from that particular aspect of your work, writing and producing, if you had any favorite moments. I loved working on the, the Western Paradise uh, because it was a Western, but we told story, stories with modern themes. So it was a very allegorical kind of show. And I really loved that because um, we told such great stories and it was an adult Stories, but we also had the kids to deal with. There were three kids that he was raising. And, and you're looking at very uh, serious, dramatic uh, situations, both from the eyes of the adults and from the kids. And you see the different pers- pers- perspectives. It was a very close set, and we all liked each other very much. And every year, we barely got picked up. It was after the first year, we were right on the bubble. And then they got picked up at the last minute. Same thing from year two to year three. So the drama of, of are we going to get picked up or not sort of added to how we all just felt like these outsiders who get just get got to keep doing keep doing it, um, and it was a western we had a western town built uh, we used at Disney Ranch, and we had you know the horses and the, the gunfights and the chases and all that wonderful stuff that you get with a with a western, which you just don't get to do much anymore. So I really enjoyed doing. It. You had mentioned that you have been to conventions, and I actually live here in Las Vegas. Um, so was wondering, do you come to Star Trek Las Vegas convention or what other conventions do you attend? Roger Lake does all of the um, Blu-ray stuff for uh, all the shows. He puts together and does all the interviews and shoots the behind the scenes and he produces all that stuff. He also uh, is one of the main people at the Star Trek convention doing the interviews of everybody. You've probably seen him on stage. Um, so he conducts a lot of the interviews. And he asked me to be interviewed uh, three years ago, I think it was. So that was my first one I went to. And I have to say, at first, it was a little, I was a little taken back because I saw all these different people in costumes, which I'd heard about but never seen firsthand, thousands of them. But then you realize that it's, they all love the show so much. And that really made it wonderful. So I had a great experience. I was impressed by uh, seeing all those people. And then I got to see the cast of all the shows. They were all there. 
So I got to see these actors who I hadn't seen in a long time and spend time with each of them. I went and I made sure I could see them all. So that was a lot of fun. Um, and it was fun being interviewed uh, by Roger. Um, I had a crowd maybe of 300 compared to the 3,000 that go into the big room for everybody. But they were asking specific questions about some of the shows, and, it was, and some of them remembered them better than I did. Uh, and that was a lot of fun. It really, so it was a great experience. I think the convention is a fantastic thing. Do you have any plans for upcoming conventions? Um, I don't have any current plans. I wouldn't mind going back to the Las Vegas one maybe next year, depending on my schedule. Sometimes I'm not available when they happen. But uh, it's wonderful for the actors. And in fact, um, you know, a lot of the actors for the, besides the Star Trek shows I've worked on now make their living going to conventions. The, the actors for Charmed, uh, a lot of them travel the world doing conventions that include Charmed, and a few of the magicians people are now doing them. So the conventions, besides being great for the fans, are great for the actors because a lot of times, Actors in these kinds of um, genre shows, their careers are really held up by the, their being associated with the shows. The conventions makes up for it because they can at least make a living and stay connected to the fans. So it's good for everybody. So outside of directing, do you have any hobbies, interests, or anything like that? Uh, yes. I, I, I'm a photographer, and I, I travel the world shooting uh, landscapes. And um, it's something that I did in the 70s that I loved, and I got too busy to, to do much of it in uh, – in the 80s and 90s and the 2000s, but now I'm sort of semi-retired from directing, so I'm back to doing a lot of photography, and I do fine art photography and, and landscape, and uh, I quite enjoy it. I go from passion to passion to passion, so the first thing I did, I wrote three um, uh, Hollywood thrillers that that are uh, you can get on Amazon, I think they're out of print in the bookstores, but it's, uh, if you look them up on Amazon, the first one is called uh, Dead and uh, Not So Buried, Second one's called In Cold Blonde. Second one's called Sexy Babe. And the third one's called In Cold Blonde. If you go James L. Conway at Amazon and look up uh, Dead and Not So Buried, you'll see them all. And they're really fun. They're, they're a combination of, of uh, a lot of humor and thriller stuff, but a lot of background Hollywood stuff in there, too. Uh, so tell us about any current or upcoming work you'd like to let our listeners know about. Well, as I mentioned, I'm doing a show called The, the Magicians. We just got picked up for season four. It's a fantastic show. If you haven't seen it, just check it out. You can see it on the Netflix. Seasons one and two are there. Season three is still airing on Sci-Fi, so it won't go to Netflix until two or three months. But it's really a wonderful show. Um, it, it embodies a lot of great storytelling, great character development, wonderful effects, humor, sexy, dramatic. I can't say enough good things about it. It's called The Magicians. I think everybody would enjoy it. Excellent. And uh, where can listeners find you online? My main website is jameslconway.com, and all the book information is there. And then um, if you're interested in my directing stuff, uh, I have jameslconwaydirector.com, and my photo stuff is at uh, jameslconway.myportfolio.com. Thanks so much for joining us today for, for an interview. We really appreciated having you here, and it was great hearing about your experience on Star Trek and other shows and movies. Great. Well, thank you very much. All right. So that was a great interview with director James L. Conway. Don't you think, Amy? Yes. I learned so much and the many opportunities and like his to be directing all good things that blew me away. And then also to be offered to direct First Contact. Like that is so huge. He obviously is an installment in Star Trek. It's great to hear that. 
Yeah, I mean, it was interesting because you think about it, like we love all good things. We love first contact, but if it's a different director, it would have been different some way. How would it have been different? What would we have thought of that? I don't know. You just think of all the yeah, possibilities. Yeah, the what ifs. Because he, I mean, he did direct a lot of great episodes. There's Frame of Mind from TNG. There's Duet and Way of the Warrior from uh, Deep Space Nine. There's Broken Bow and Damage and, you know, In, in a Mirror Mirror Darkly. Darkly. I mean, yeah. uh, lots of episodes that, that people talk about a lot. So yeah. it would have been interesting for him to get into a feature film or like, you know, big finale, like All Good Things, certainly. Yeah, but I, mean, I, I would love to see him, uh, what he would think of or how he would uh, envision First Contact. You know, mm-hmm. I was. I mean, it's already a great film as is. It could it be any more awesome? We don't know. Maybe it could have been. You know, but what <laughs> did you think overall of the interview, Richard? I absolutely loved it. Um, I'm glad that um, I'm not the only one that thinks that way about Discovery. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> <laughs> right. But, but like, I mean, especially a director of all people. But like, mm-hmm. I mean, I mean, you know, all kidding aside, it is a good. It is a good series overall. But regardless, you know, I'm just glad that. But I mean. I talk, I mean, actually remembering his name and seeing all those great directors that we all, all the episodes we love, it's just, I just, I got to go back over them and watch them again because, I mean, I'm sure, I, I think what most directors probably have a similar theme to uh, to them uh, to themselves. And since if he likes the... I don't know, man. I think there's ones. a huge... It, it's interesting because it can depend on the script. Like there's a yeah. huge difference between like, you know, justice and in a mirror darkly right <laughs> right I mean, but but that's also like the evo- like that's across 18 years of star trek so what they were going for in 1987 yeah. was very different than what they were going for in 2005 or what they're going for in deep space nine was different than voyager and so he yeah. had to adapt to all of these things and i think you'll see if you did a rewatch of all the episodes they feel very like different but yeah. There's I, I don't know, it's 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 kind of interesting. There's a certain cohesiveness I think for some of the Deep Space 9 ones, but Well, anyway, and I think that shows like his integrity as a director cuz he talked about, you know, you tell the story first. And so mm-hmm. he obviously uh, respects that and respects the mm-hmm. story so that his directing fits, you know, where whatever span of those 18 years that he is directing. Mm-hmm. And I just yeah. I love that that he, you know, is back on the Orville and, you know, goes back and again, respects the story and is going to mm-hmm. do it, you know, more similar to TNG and Voyager. That's, that's awesome. Yeah. It's interesting because he did say, like, he looks at what's there on the page and tries to just help to translate that into the final product that you see. And what's on that page can be, again, like, you know, difference between Justice and Amir Darkly, extremely different scripts and different things they're going for. But he's going to do those in the way that he thinks is most faithful to it, which is really interesting. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I know. I, I think about, you know, well, I asked him, I'm like, you know, you've got justice and then you've got frame of mind. <laughs> and I was telling him before, I was like, I watched frame of mind last night, right before going to bed. And like, that is intense. Like my dreams were yeah. crazy. I had to wake up a couple times. It was just, that was yeah. an intense episode. So vastly different than, you know, from what we see with justice and even the neutral zone. Well, Justice was a good episode up until it is oh, a great episode. Richard, but but I mean, it's a good point, Amy. Like, you'll never have a nightmare about justice, right? Right. I mean, but but with Frame of Mind, it's like, oh my goodness, because could something like that happen? What are these levels of reality? And it's a very suspenseful episode that yeah. only gets resolved in the last couple of minutes. So, mm-hmm. but it also says how TNG changed because you could not have had an episode like Frame of Mind in season one. 
Right. I don't think that it would have fit with what they were going for at that point and finding their feet. Like frame of mind is TNG being very confident at what it's doing. So Yeah. Mm. Yeah. Well, listeners, we hope that you enjoyed the uh, interview this week with director James L. Conway. And next week, we have another interview for you, this time with Dwight Schultz, who played Lieutenant Barclay on TNG and Voyager. We're very excited about that, aren't we, Amy? We are so excited. I just can't even contain myself. I just I can't (laughs) wait. These interviews are so amazing. And I'm just honored to be talking with these great stars. Yeah, it's 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 amazing to have that opportunity. Richard, your thoughts. I love broccoli. I mean, Barkley. <laughs> Oops, Captain. <laughs> Oops, sorry. <laughs> no, I, I'm actually looking forward to this one. This is going to be great. <laughs> well, it's been amazing talking with Star Trek director James L. Conway, but that isn't the only thing we've been talking about here on the network. Here's what you might have missed elsewhere on Trek FM. Previously on Trek.FM, The Ready Room. I should have had my mom buy me everything because now it would be worth a ton, like the goofy Spock helmets. But I remember hooting <laughs> at those things back in the day. <laughs> you know, like, they think we're just stupid. That wasn't in the show. You don't have a real phaser wouldn't say Star Trek on the side of it. Standard orbit. I cannot find anybody in print saying, we're going to the standard Enterprise Delta to honor the Enterprise as being the first ship of the constellation, you know, the first the five-year mission ships to come back relatively intact with its crew and ship intact. And it was not a, some fan did not just say this. Somebody in the production somewhere, and someday by God I will find where this came from, because like we didn't all have this mass group hallucination about it. Somebody put a, felt the need to say everybody's wearing an Enterprise patch now, so, you know, that's past us. To the journey! So if we're going to have a more Vulcan-like Tom in Tuvom, presumably Tuvom would have to meditate and he would have to go somewhere to meditate. I'm thinking he wouldn't just go to his quarters to meditate with candles like Tuvok does, or he wouldn't go sit on some rocks on a planet somewhere. He would go in the holodeck and lock himself in his Camaro and meditate with the radio on. What would be playing on the radio? Vulcan opera. Ah. <laughs> <laughs> That sounds horrible. Warp five. <laughs> Shows the, the gestation of the Borg from their first cube and the diamond <laughs> ships. <laughs> Just transwarp conduits. Floating on the ocean. <laughs> <laughs> Little Borg yes. spacemen. Yep. Before they were fully immune to the outside uh, <laughs> elements, so they had little space helmets, Borg space helmets. Mm-hmm. And that's what else is happening on Trek.fm. Check out all of these shows and join the conversation about your favorite corner of the Star Trek universe and beyond. You'll find us wherever you get your podcasts. If you're an Apple user, be sure to hit the subscribe button in Apple Podcasts on iPhone, iPad, or Apple TV, or the desktop iTunes app to get the latest episodes as soon as they are published. And please leave us a star rating and written review. That helps others to find the show. If you're not an Apple user, we've got you covered as well. You can find our shows on Google Play Music, Stitcher, TuneIn, Spreaker, SoundCloud, Windows Phone, and most third-party apps, and you can stream and download the MP3 file from our website or grab the RSS link. We'd love to hear your thoughts on today's show, and there are many ways for you to do that. The best place to join in the larger conversation is the Babel Conference, our listeners group on Facebook. Just type Babel, B-A-B-E-L, into the search field on Facebook, and it should come right up. 
If you'd like to send us an email, you can use the form on our website at trek.fm contact. Choose to send to a show and select Earl Grey. That will come right to us. You can also find the network on Twitter at trek.fm and on Facebook at facebook.com slash trek.fm. So Richard, where can people contact you when you're not wondering if the life you're living is real? Well, first I got to pinch myself just to make sure. You know what I mean? Yes. <laughs> Wake up. Hurt? Yeah. <laughs> or throw a, a rock against the wall or something like that to see if there's no holograph. But anyway, um, <laughs> they can find me on the Babel Conference. I pop in here and there. And I am also on Twitter. My handle is xransom. So Justin, uh, where can people contact you when you're not walking, uh, waking up from being uh, being in a cryogenic state for 370 years? Well, you can find me on Twitter. I'm at trekfan4747, where I tweet about nothing but Star Trek. Uh, currently tweeting out my season five rewatch of The Next Generation, and you can also find me hanging around the Babel Conference on Facebook. So Amy, where can people find you when you're not discussing the Prime Directive? You can find me here on the network. I co-host The Edge, that is Trek FM's podcast for Discovery with uh, Brandon Shea-Mutella. You can find me on Twitter, at Miss Amy Nelson, but my favorite place is the Babel Conference, so you can find me there. If you'd like to help us keep all our shows coming to you each week, you can become a patron of the network on Patreon. Visit patreon.com slash trekfm, that's P-A-T-R-E-O-N, dot com slash trek fm to get all the details perks include early access to episodes exclusive content producer credits and more available through our special patrons website patron zone it requires a great deal of money to produce host and distribute these shows each month we really appreciate any support you can give us and hope you'll join the team again you'll find all the details at patreon.com slash trek fm and we'd like to take this opportunity to recognize our current associate producers, Norman Lau, Justin Ozer, Michael Huter, and Thomas Appel. Thank you so much for supporting Trek FM and Earl Gray. That is the first time I ever nailed that Patreon. <laughs> All <laughs> the way job. through without messing up. <laughs> you did great. So join us next time for another cup of Earl Gray. Today is a good day to die! Great joy and gratitude. I'm not crazy! <laughs> <laughs>